Hello, hello. Welcome back to Peak Northwest, an outdoors and travel podcast by The Oregonian and Oregon Live, dedicated to the adventure and exploration of our beautiful Pacific Northwest. I'm Jamie Hale. And I'm Jim Ryan. And together we take you to some of the most beautiful and interesting destinations in our region, discussing where to go, what to do, and places to see. And today we are venturing into a strange and mysterious place that you can only see at certain times of day and really certain times of the year. And those places are the low tide areas of the Oregon coast. Yeah, Jim, you know, I feel like I say this a lot, but these are definitely, definitely some of my favorite places in (laughs) Oregon. They're technically known as the the intertidal zone, which is the ecosystem. And these are basically the tide pools, the slick, rocky areas that are uncovered when the tide is out. You know, the area between the high tide zone and the low tide zone. So there's a ton to see here. We're talking sea stars. We're talking anemones. We're talking little tiny crabs and, you know, weird plants. Mm -hmm. It's like looking into an alien world in these places. So... When there's a super low tide on the coast, like the one that is happening at the end of June, there's even more to discover. Jamie, I should say the episode right now is prescient because of this low tide at the end of the month, which we'll get into in a little bit here. But we should throw the standard asterisk uh, up front here, which is exploring these low tide areas isn't all fun and games, right? Mm -hmm. These environments can be very sensitive the ecosystems that uh, exist there and also dangerous for people to explore, right? You can slip and fall. Obviously, uh, it's a wet environment, waves coming in. You, You know the drill for exploring on the Oregon coast. But before we get to all the cool places to explore, at low tide on the Oregon coast, we should probably first, uh, I think, Jamie, go over a little low tide etiquette and safety, starting with uh, what probably is the most important question to ask, which is how do you know when low tide will actually be? Yeah, Jim. So that is obviously the most important question because you don't want to go out there when it's not actually low tide. That's super dangerous and you can get yourself into some serious trouble. Um, So the best thing to do is to learn how to read a tide table. So if you have not seen one of these before, I'm sure a lot of you probably have. It is a table that shows you the tides, just like it sounds. So on the left-hand side, you'll see the date, and next to that, you'll see a time. And the number next to that is usually the height, so that's basically how far the tide is in or out. So for low tide, you're looking for as low a number as you can get. And for some of the things we're going to be talking about today, some of these really good super low tide attractions, you're going to want a number that is a minus number. So it'll have a little minus sign next to it. Mm -hmm. And if you can get down to minus below two feet, approaching minus below three feet, then that is going to be a really good number and great conditions to go out there. Of course, you really want to make sure that you know when the tide is going to come back in. So a nice trick to make sure you're not going to get caught as the tide's coming back in is to go out with the tide. So show up to where you're going a little bit before that low tide time and walk out with it and so that you leave yourself plenty of time to get back in before that tide comes in and potentially traps you in an area you don't want to be. This is a, a example number 1,702 here on the Peak Northwest podcast of plan ahead, 
right? Don't just show up. Uh, don't just arrive at your favorite pullout at the luxurious time after you got brunch and uh, stop to get some sea salt taffy and, uh, you know, did whatever you wanted to do. Plan ahead, right? Set an agenda and follow it. And stick to it as well and be disciplined about when you're coming back in. Exactly. And once you're out there, as we mentioned before, safety is of the utmost importance. Mm -hmm. These are areas that are underwater a lot of the time. So they are wet. They are slick. Um, There's oftentimes a lot of jagged rocks, a lot of holes, things to step in. And you know, it's really easy if you're not watching your footing or if, say, you're wearing like a pair of flip flops or something mm-hmm. to hurt yourself pretty severely on these jagged, rough uh, edges of these places. I would say wear a, gr- a good pair of shoes. Be really careful about where you step, mm-hmm. not only because of, you know, the risk of slipping, but also because of the creatures that are exposed and living there. So you don't want to be stepping on sea stars. As much as kids like to poke the anemones and have the water, you know, squirt out of them or whatever, make them do their things, I'd say just leave stuff alone Mm -hmm. in general. Try not to walk on anything living. I think that's like a pretty good general rule of thumb for tide pools and pretty much anywhere you go in the world. Absolutely, Jamie. We're entering their environment, if you will, and we need to respect that. So don't be poking and prodding at whatever you see. Don't walk on living stuff if you can avoid it. Just be conscious of your surroundings. And we should extend that one step further here as well and say, you know, our beaches may be public, but many rocky areas just off the shore are not, right? So Mm -hmm. low tide can offer us access to areas that are usually inaccessible, but some are protected for the sake of the wildlife that we've talked about. So Look for signs and respect areas that are posted as being off limits on the coast. Yeah, they're generally pretty good about telling you where you can and can't Mm -hmm. go. But that's another additional piece of research that is helpful to do before you go out there. And Jamie, I alluded to this a little bit earlier too, not to dwell too much on safety, but we are a podcast that is trying to, you know, help people spend their free time wisely and well, and of course, safely as the tide goes out. It will naturally come back in. So folks should keep an eye on the surf, start heading inland when it starts to rise. And Jamie, you've said it before on the show. I've probably said it before on the show. Don't turn your back on the ocean. Yeah, don't do it. Keep an eye on the ocean at all times you can. Waves can come in and crash and, you know, grab you and take you into the water there. And it is always, always bad news when that happens. So, Jamie, with all of our disclaimers checked here, all of our safety tips and, uh, you know, good steward of the environment tips rattled off, now it is time for the fun stuff, if you will. There are so many good places to go check out on the Oregon coast. We're not going to be able to hit all of them here on the show today, but you are our local tide pool aficionado, so... Take us away. Where should we go first? Well, I want to just, first of all, say that I, I want to leave kind of the, the best spots for last year. Um, at a little anticipation, okay. of course. Okay. All right. As we should, right? And, you know, before we get into some of these specific attractions, I, I always want to say that generally speaking, there are lots of good tide pools to go um, and check out. The Central Oregon Coast, if you want tide pools, is your spot. Yahats, Cape Perpetua, a lot of great tide pools in that area. So I would check those out for sure. But when we're talking about like individual attractions, things that you go to see specifically this one thing for low tide, the first thing that comes to my mind is Devil's Punch Bowl. 
We've talked about this before on our Central Oregon Coast episode. It is a, a really spectacular rock formation, a sea cave with a collapsed roof there um, near Ottercrest Beach on the Central Oregon Coast. And at low tide and at extremely low tide, it is a really cool place that you can actually go inside of and enter safely. And when you're inside of it, it's just a whole other world. It's just a really, really cool experience to sort of be in the midst of this bowl of sandstone and other kinds of rock and to hear the waves crashing just on the other side. It's a really cool experience, I think. Super cool experience. I dislike revealing things that I have not done in Oregon. I feel like I <laughs> chip away at my like uh, the hypothetical cred that I have here. Uh, basically, every show I have not done this. You have done this. I'm nearly certain, yes. Jamie. You've been down in Devil's Punch Bowl, and the photos are again not to make this like oh let's go chase uh, you know beautiful photos per se, but it, it, photos show a pretty stunning landscape down there. It is a special, special place for sure. One of my favorite low tide attractions. Although I, I will say this next one on the list is the one I probably talk about the most often because I think mm -hmm. it is just probably one of the most, you know, I shouldn't say unique, but they're all, you know, unique in their own way. But it is a yeah. very interesting low tide attraction with historical element to it. So this is the Boiler of Boiler Bay. Jim, do you know this story of how Boiler Bay got its name? So I feel like I've interfaced with this in some way, but you should tell it to me like I have no idea what I'm talking about here. So, Jim, this goes back to 1910 when the ill-fated Jay Marhofer steam schooner was going up along the Oregon coast. It caught fire and then it ran into the rocks um, there near Depot Bay and exploded <laughs> in dramatic fashion. The the people, you know, abandoned the ship and most, I think everyone was okay, but it just spread this debris everywhere on the coast. And a lot of it was picked up and scrapped and claimed, but the boiler, the ship's boiler itself is still sitting out there in this intertidal <laughs> area in what is now known as Boiler Bay. And if you're just looking out there when the tide is up, you can't really see it. It's kind of hard to see from like that main boiler bay viewpoint that most people mm -hmm. go to. But there's a little tiny parking area just down the road. It only fits probably two or three cars, so it's really tough. But if you're able to get down there, um, you can walk down the cliffs, down a trail that leads you out into that intertidal area. And you can walk just a short way and see the boiler for yourself. This huh. pretty large, bigger than you might think piece of rusted you know history just sitting out there among the moss covered rocks very interesting G give me a sense of like size and scale i have no idea how big a boiler like this should be it oh gosh i mean you could climb inside of it you, okay yeah. that that gives me yeah. enough i'm like i'm not expecting you to rattle off the dimensions here off the top of your head but a pretty large sucker sitting out there yeah you probably shouldn't climb inside of it but like sure a human could several humans could probably fit inside of this thing hmm. the more you know <laughs> jamie i'm gonna keep moving down our list and i have no name recognition of this place whatsoever you put this on our list i'm excited to hear about it personally lost boy beach this is a beach that for most of the year is not accessible at all. So for those who uh, explore the Oceanside area of the North Oregon coast, they may know this as a spot between 
uh, Short Beach, which is um, sort of a little tucked away beach there just north of Oceanside, and Tunnel Beach, which is right there in Oceanside, um, known for that tunnel that is blasted out through the rock that lets you get there. So when the tide is out, you can go, I, I believe, from either way. Full disclosure, Jim, I have not done this one yet. Okay. But a lot of people, what they do is they'll go to Short Beach and just when because the tide is out enough, you can walk around the rocks that normally block access. Oh, cool. And get access to this place called Lost Boy Beach. You know, the sort of the, the history of it, or the, the, maybe the rumor of it is that um, some boys went there and died there um, some number of years ago, hence the name Lost Boy Beach, mm-hmm. which underscores again how dangerous some of these areas are. It looks like a super cool place. There are um, some kind of like sea caves and some big rocks and a lot of really cool wildlife out there but again this is a spot where if you dawdle for too long and the tide comes back in it is trapping all of your exits to get out and that is some seriously bad news yep so underscoring again the safety tips we talked about at the start of today's show I mean, honestly, it's kind of a scary scenario, really. And the onus is on you to make good decisions when entering these areas, because uh, like you said, Jamie, to be trapped with no clear way out if you don't you know, obey the tide tables or, or view the tide tables and make decisions based on them and then watch the tide coming back in. You know, that's a, a pretty grave situation and one that uh, surely we don't want anyone to encounter. Jamie, take us away from kind of grave uh, talk here and give us the lowdown on Secret Beach. Secret Beach, or as I like to call it, not so secret beach, yeah. is um, a very, very small beach in the um, Samuel H. Boardman State Scenic Corridor in southern Oregon, on the southern Oregon coast. Unlike these other things, it's not like a low tide attraction per se, but it is a beach that people really enjoy. Um, I think in part because of its remoteness, you have to hike in a short way to get there. In part because of its name, Secret Beach mm-hmm. just sounds so alluring. Um, but it is one of these places where you need a good low tide just to get there. And Secret Beach is not the only beach like mm-hmm. this. There are a lot of spots on the central Oregon coast, especially where the shoreline is rockier, where there's a lot of these really small beaches that only really reveal themselves when the tide is out. Other times of the day or other times of the year, they may just look like the water lapping up against rocks against the cliffs. But you go and that tide is out and all of a sudden you have this walkable, beautiful, sandy beach to go visit. It's pretty remarkable, honestly. Uh, And the name Secret Beach, not so secret or otherwise, (laughs) uh, is alluring, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It it draws you in. It's, oh boy, I kind of want to go check that out. Uh, so Jamie, uh, that's a good one for everyone to put on their lists again, not so secret, but we still have the two best low tide attractions on the Oregon coast to discuss. And we're going to do so right after a short break. All right, folks, we are back talking about Oregon's best low tide attractions. And Jamie, we have saved the best two for last. Jamie, we have one that is extremely popular and probably notable by name. Another that, uh, you know, maybe some Oregon Coast aficionados are going to know right off the top of their heads. And they're like, oh, of course, you're leading up to this. Um, but many folks may be unfamiliar uh, with our, our number one. So, Jamie, the second best low tide attraction on the Oregon coast, Haystack Rock. 
uh, Haystack Rock. It's it's great. And I know it is a place that a lot of people go all the time. And so some people may yep. be rolling their eyes. Oh, back to Haystack Rock, back <laughs> with the crowds at Cannon Beach. But look, this is just one of the best sea stacks on the Oregon coast, if not the best sea stack in the Oregon coast. Mm-hmm. And when tide is out, when it's super low, you can walk around the entire thing which is a can really, you really you can it's a cool wow. experience the tide has to be out enough mind you i mean okay at regular okay. low tides you get those tide pools and you can kind of go check out the, the base of the rock itself but when it goes out really far you can just circumnavigate the thing um again huh. being careful all the safety tips in mind um but it is just a super cool experience that is um, a great nesting site for a lot of birds um really great tide pools for all kinds of wildlife and just the the rock itself is so cool i mean it's iconic for a reason um so you know if you can brave the crowds at cannon beach and you are willing to get a look at a different side of an attraction that you probably know pretty well hesack rock is a great option for your low tide adventures that is very cool i did not know that you could walk all the way around it if the conditions are right that's just a kind of really uh, special Oregon coast experience because you look at Haystack Rock and it's, I don't know, maybe a, a normal low tide might get you close to it. I haven't you know been there that many times, but it's always been kind of a far away thing for me. I've never been like right there. So to be able to walk all the way around it is uh, a twist on an already extremely popular, visible, known commodity on the coast. Jamie, we have, in fact, saved the best for last. I could do a drum roll, I could do whatever, but the ghost forest at Neskowin is so, so cool. And I'll let you describe this because you have been out there and have taken some gorgeous photos of this uh, and experienced it for yourself. But holy moly, what a cool place. Yeah, Jim, this is a really, really cool site. So in the late 1990s, a series of winter storms battered the Oregon coast and unearthed what appears to be an ancient forest. So these are stumps of Sitka spruce that are estimated to be about 2000 years old. It may have been buried there by a cataclysmic earthquake, perhaps the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake hundreds of years ago. But today when the tide is out, you can see these stumps emerge from the sand and they're covered in barnacles and sea stars and making their own little pools of water and it is just such a strange and delightful sight mm-hmm. to see all of these weird jagged stumps and snags just rising out of the sand you know you have this big stretch of beach at Nesquin, proposal rock in the distance it just makes for some beautiful photos and it's just a strange sight to see like i said you know when i was there taking pictures it seemed like people were just kind of wandering around as if in a daze uh and <laughs> you know just marveling at what what this this strange thing is um these objects coming out of the sand i think that that mix of natural beauty of there being a historical aspect to it you know the accessibility of it it's not dangerous to access makes it i think easily the best low tide attraction on the oregon coast and every time you know and any of our folks go out there and take photos i mean th- this place is just uh almost too cool to be true really i mean it mm-hmm. seems like something that you're like, 
what the heck? How did that happen? And of course, you just explained how uh, folks think it happened. But uh, scrolling through the photos, which of course we'll link to in the show notes, I've used the the word otherworldly a number of times here on the show, I'm sure. But uh, this definitely fits the description. And I can say too, you know, for folks who maybe are are busy at the end of the month and aren't going to be able to hit this exceptionally low tide period, the ghost forest can be seen year-round during low tide. It's just exceptionally cool. Um, And you can see more of it, obviously, when exceptionally low tides are in effect. So, you know, take it for what you will, but uh, coming up is a really, really good time to go check this place out. Yeah, Jim. So when we're talking about those low, super low tides later this month, we're talking about roughly June 23 to June 27th. And again, check the tide tables for where you are going to be on the coast to make sure you know what time of day that's going to happen. A lot of these are kind of early in the morning. The the lowest tide on June 25th is going to be at 7.30 a.m. So you really want to make sure you know when to go out there and what it's going to be like for where you are. A good resource I like to use is NOAA, N-O-A-A, which is a government agency that tracks tides and currents. It is a little bit hard to access their website, but if you are able to find their tide projections for specific stations along the Oregon coast, the data there is really, really helpful and just, I think, the best resource online when it comes to finding tide predictions. Very good, Jamie. And of course, keeping in mind, as we've touched on multiple times here, the safety information, don't turn your back on the ocean. Be safe out there, folks, and uh, be aware of the tides coming back in. All of that said, folks, until next time here on the show, you can watch our videos on the Oregonians YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram at Peak Northwest, and view all of our travel and outdoors coverage on OregonLive.com slash travel. Please leave us a rating or a review if you enjoy the show. And if you want to support this podcast and our local journalism, please consider a subscription to Oregon Live. You can find details, of course, at OregonLive.com slash pod support. This episode of the show was produced by me, Jim Ryan, alongside Jamie Hale and Andrew Thien. Stay safe and happy travels, everyone. Until next time, we leave you with this 10 seconds of Zen. <laughs>